And at the same time, I did also refer that public service is expected to be competent, efficient. It has to display value for taxpayers' money. So that is why that means the public service needs to be professional. That means it has to be based on professional values. And at the same time, the public service is also expected to operate. It should not be operating because in a democratic system, in a modern democratic context, it is not expected to operate on the basis of its whims and fancies, not on the basis of the whims and fancies of individuals or let's say families or let's say a, a, a limited number of people in terms of oligarchy. Rather, if you take into account uh, the, 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 the public service, the public service is expected to operate under the premise of constitution, under the premise of rule of law. So that means it needs to actually be based on certain democratic ethos. That means it has to actually sustain and perpetuate democratic values. Apart from this, see public service needs to operate, being responsive. So it should not be simply be an institution which would, like let's say, in work culture in India, work culture in Indian administration, or the administrative culture in Indian administration, we refer that one of the features of the, the Indian administration is it is something it is very much paternalistic. It acts like a guardian. It believes as if it is it is the one who knows the best, and in that particular context it becomes less responsive. That means it did not actually respond to the needs and expectations of the people. But public service, though, has to act with conscience, ethical values, honesty, integrity, commitment, with professionalism, with competence, but at the same time, it should actually undertake its responsibility while being responsive to the individual needs expectations or the citizen needs expectation or their interest. That means it needs to be based on human values. That is why we refer that in the modern democratic system a good administrative system is the one that is competent, that is efficient, that is economical at the same time that operates with honesty, integrity, empathy being disciplined, remaining within the boundary of the constitution, operating on the basis of rule of law, but being responsive to the citizen and their interest, values, needs, or even social ethos. So that is why we refer that the, the, the values in public service can be broadly divided into how many categories? Four categories. Those being ethical values, professional values, democratic values and human values. Now see, when we refer to ethical values, see ethical values are not only good in itself, as far as the public service is concerned, it is also instrumental in nature. So ethical values in public service is not merely desirable for itself, for its own importance, the importance that it, it, it itself carries, 
but also being, being an instrument for certain other goals. Now, why ethical values are important in itself? Because of which public service should be carrying these ethical values? Because the moment we talk about ethical values, we are talking about honesty. We are talking about integrity. We are talking about empathy. We are talking about benevolence. See, the, no, we are talking about equity or fairness, justice. So here we are saying that ethical values are to be the part of public service. So a public servant should be honest, should be an individual with integrity, should be empathetic. And here we are saying these values are important for itself. It is important in itself. And also it is important being instrumental for certain other goals to be achieved. And why these goals are important in itself? Now why these are important in itself? Yes. <coughs> uh, provided <coughs> if you have gone through no such topics like let's say <coughs> sorry the ethical values in public and the private relation, you know, professional relations and private relations. <coughs> in that we will understand that though the role responsibility of an individual being a private citizen would not be exactly overlapping with the role responsibility of an individual being a part of an organization, let's say being a civil servant. Yet there are certain values that define the role, responsibility or obligation of individual per se, whether be a member of the government, being a civil servant, being a public servant, being a member of a private business organization or being simply a member of the society, being a private citizen. So certain values are in, in, a, in a something inherently desirable for human being in general. These values, what we are referring to, the human beings are expected to be ethical. So that's what we referred here. That if you take into account public servants, public servants are required to nurture certain ethical values. Why? Because the ethical values are important in itself. They should be honest for the sake of being honest. They should be individuals with integrity for the sake of integrity. They should be empathetic for the sake of being empathetic because being human, these are something that is required. This is something which is essential. But having said so, the more important aspect that we are saying here is that these ethical values are required in public service not merely for its own sake, but also because it is required for certain other desirable goals in public service. Why so? Like let's say, public service is a, a type of activity that is carried out with public trust. 
तो पब्लिक सर्विस कैरीज पब्लिक ट्रस्ट Revolt. 
And in fact, in Indian context, if you take into account number of cases, if you take into account, it's an oxygen and all these things. Many of the time, what we study, what is the what is the root cause for all this, uh, let's say, violent uh, development? Because see, a large section of people they lost trust in the state. So here we are referring that the ethical values are very significant, not because they are important in itself, but because it is important for certain desirable goals of the state. The, 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 the very basic foundation, the most important foundation of the state is its legitimacy. So, but for these ethical values, state will lose legitimacy and the lose, loss of legitimacy will result into violence, result into alienation, result into revolt, civil war. So that means it might have very dangerous traits. In fact, if not, this uh, no extreme, if not this extreme consequences, but rejected legitimacy weakens the state. It weakens the state. Why it weakens the state? Because the state cannot rely on the people. So if the people are not having trust in the state, so for everything state has to struggle a lot or not? If state has to communicate something, people are not ready to believe. If the state is actually to implement something, people will not support, people will not participate, implementation becomes difficult. So that means the reduction in legitimacy, but for the you know, because of the lack of ethical values, leads to us loss of trust, confidence, weakening of the state, and even in the extreme case, results into violence, revolt, civil war, etc. Now the next value we are referring to the professional values. Already have referred. What are the professional values? Professional values aim at efficiency, economy, efficiency, competence. That is what professional values say not. So the professional values thereby refers to objectivity. Impartiality. Scientism, technicism, that means having the necessary professional scientific skills, technical skills. Now when you talk about the objectivity, scientism, technicism, or overall the values that is aiming towards competence, economy and efficiency. See, professional values are important because professional values help public servants to be rid of their private, personal, emotional biases.
in a personal, professional, emotional biases. That means the professional values help the public servants <coughs> to take up responsibilities as per merit. That helps to avoid nepotism, favoritism. Helps them to develop skill, workmanship, imparts them the technical knowledge of handling the job. And the technical knowledge of handling the job. But imparts them with the necessary acumen. deal with the job and various job situations. That means in general we can say the professional values help public servants to adapt and adjust. To the job requirements and gradually improve on their capacity to deliver. Now what is this democratic values? See democratic values basically refers to the commitment towards the rule of law. So the democratic values are important because democratic values help the civil servants to understand the constitutional framework, legal framework, enables the civil servant to act with restraint. Act with restraint means what? They say, Bahasame you will find the government servants they simply become intoxicated with power. And being intoxicated with power, they forget that this power is for a purpose. Rather, they start misusing it, abusing it. So that's what it is referred. That the democratic values enable the civil the public servants to act with restraint. That means undertaking their responsibilities while remaining within the boundary of 
legal limitations. That means democratic values make civil servants more respectful, you know, more polite and respectful towards citizen, towards constitutional norms. Similarly, if we take into account human values, so the human values are important because not only within the organization but also outside the organization, especially with regard to you know, vis a vis the citizen. It is important that the public servants should be responsive to the needs, expectations, aspirations. So these are the four different types of values that is very much required for the public service. But see, apart from this, in general, let me refer to a few things. In a generalized way, let me refer because simply we can say these are the major values, though we categorized it under four major categories. But see, if you take into account the public service, and we are talking about public service in which context? In government. Because public service as a concept is a very wider, it carries a very wider connotation 
Here let me give you a small reference to this. No, don't write this. Because see, already we have discussed the difference between bureaucracy and civil service. I discussed it, but it's a little bit of a refer to it. Okay, I'll tell you If you take into account an army general, can I refer the army general as a bureaucrat? Hmm? You can. Because see, bureaucracy simply refers to a body of appointed officials. So any individual who is appointed is a part of the bureau. So that way, whether the, the highest ranking official or the even the lowest. So right from the general to the jawan, they are the part of the bureaucracy. Right from the chief justice of India to that of, let's say, the office beyond in the judiciary is the part of the bureaucracy. Right from the secretary to the government of India to that of the let's say the ready employees in the same office are the part of bureaucracy. So a body of appointed officials, that's what is bureaucracy. But see, they, if you take into account civil service, there were civil servants. Civil service is also a body of appointed professionals, similar to that of bureaucracy. But what is critically different between the two? Because see, the members of the judiciary and members of the armed forces, they are part of the bureaucracy, but they are not the part of the civil service. Otherwise, both are what? The same idea, appointed professionals, body of appointed professionals. So civil service is comparatively, we can say, in terms of its ambit, is restricted because it only includes what? The, the, the appointed officials other than the law members and the, the armed forces. But at the same time, though another difference we generally maintain bureaucracy generally carries a negative tone. Civil service carries a positive tone. But in relation to this, if you take into account public service, it is, it is a type of activity. You know, public service basically refers to, uh, it's, it's not about body of appointed officials or elected officials or let's say nominated or selected, nothing like that. It might be like, it might be nominated, it might be appointed, it might, but it, it, it might be anything. It might be temporary, it might be permanent. But anything that is engaged in maximizing public interest, anything that is aiming at addressing the public interest, that is what is referred to as public service. So thereby, public service has a huge ambit and social activist is in public service. A politician, a political executive, a cabinet member is engaged in public service. If you take into account a civil servant is engaged in Public service. So thereby public service has a broader ambit, a wider ambit. Now see, considering public service from which because our, our discussion is restricted to what? Civil service. Basically we are talking about bureaucracy. We are talking about civil service. Civil servant. 
So that's what we are discussing in the case of values in public service. Here public service is not actually including all these things. In fact, it's referring to the government or the, the people engaged in okay, the public services basically as the member of government, whether be the cabinet minister uh, or let's say a, a legislator or the civil servant, but more particularly the civil servant. No, we are talking about government, but more particularly the government. Now see, in very, a very small generalized discussion that we take up here. See, if you take into account public service, the public service represents people and at the same time is a part of the organization, a part of a particular organization. So that is why if you take into account public service, public service and its values needs to be understood from the perspective of this two dimension. What are these two dimensions? One, the representational dimension. Second, the organizational dimension. Let me repeat this. The public service is engaged in a type of activity that represents the people. So the roles and the role and responsibility is defined as the representative of the people. And at the same time, its role and responsibility being a member of an organization, member of an organization, like let's say you becoming a civil servant, one, you are acting on the behalf of who? People, people of this country. And second, you are also the member of what? Let's say the government of India or a particular government of the state. So thereby, if you try to understand the values of public service, it needs to be understood from two major dimensions. What are these dimensions? One is representational dimension and the other is organizational dimension. Now I'm going to talk about representational dimension. See public service representing people in general has, to, has been assigned with certain responsibilities and at the same time is also empowered with certain power and authority. So being the representative, since it is acting on the behalf of others, it's not because a private citizen is acting on behalf of whom? Self. But a public servant is not acting on the behalf of that particular individual. The moment you become a district magistrate, you are not acting on the behalf of you as an individual. You are acting on the behalf of whom? The people. So a civil servant, a public servant acts on the behalf of the people. So since he is acting on the behalf of the people, that assigns the public servant certain responsibilities, certain obligations, certain duties. And at the same time, it also assigns the public servant with certain power and authorities. Here, when a public servant is acting on the behalf of others, so it has to address to the needs of whom? 
on people in general so thereby it has to be unbiased unbiased impartial neutral and at the same time it has to be empathetic and compassionate So here we are referring that since the public servant acts on the behalf of others, so thereby it is holding that position as being a trustee. So it is holding a position of trust. So that requires the public servants to act with honesty, with integrity, with fairness, with impartiality. With unbiasedness, and at the same time with empathy and with compassion. Why? Because see, the people they represent are not all equal. So when they act on the behalf of the people, people are not homogeneous. People are heterogeneous. They have their own problem. They have their own viewpoint. Or they have their own aspirations and expectations. There are poor as well as rich. There are people who need more, people who need less. So thereby, the public servant is expected to be empathetic and compassionate. At the same time, we are referring the other dimension. What the other dimension? Member of the organization. So how does it have to undertake its role and responsibilities? Being unbiased, being impartial, being just, being empathetic, being compassionate. But in this particular context, since representing others, how it has to exercise its power and authority? Because see, the power and authority is has been assigned with a purpose. It being a representative. Since it is exercising this on the behalf of others, so thereby the power has to be exercised in accordance with the furtherance of public interest. So we are bossing about that. If I have power, then why do I exercise it? So what is the solution? The power is why? Because you are being a representative. So thereby that power is only for the purpose of maximizing what public interest.
So that means another important aspect that is being emphasized here is that public servant should exercise his power with benevolence. and commitment towards public interest but see while undertaking these responsibilities and exercising the power on the behalf of the people which the moment you are undertaking the role of responsibility of delivering goods and services and moment you are exercising power if there are people who are going to be also affected. So while the public servant is exercising its role or is playing its role or, or, or carrying out its roles and responsibilities or exercising the power, it is going to benefit people and it might also disadvantage people. It might benefit communities, it might as well disadvantage communities. It might actually benefit the already entrenched interest or it might affect the entrenched interest. So that is why it needs to be, because we are saying all this has to be exercised with this, it has to be impartial, unbiased, honesty, integrity, compassion or empathy or for that matter in this context we refer that with benevolence, with commitment to public interest. But at the same time, we are saying that this job involves some danger, some complexity. What is the complexity? This moment it is carried out, people are going to be benefited, people are also going to be disadvantaged. Communities are going to be benefited, communities are going to be disadvantaged. Groups are going to be benefited, groups are going to be disadvantaged. People who are actually already benefiting might benefit, might get disadvantaged. So poor might get benefit, rich might also they get affected. So that means what? The performance of the public service, the job of the job, the job of the public service involves pressure, involves demand, involves influence. That means automatically this will this will result into let's say demand influence influence through let's say bribing number of ways or threat pressure number of this thing so that means say the civil servant in order to perform these responsibilities in accordance to the expectation being the representative of the people needs to purchase another important value that is. What is this courage? Courage is the ability of an individual to do what is right. Stand up 
for something which is considered as right. At the same time, courage refers to the ability of an individual to avoid being vulnerable to towards greed, fear, undue pressure, temptations, etc. Are you able to understand this aspect? Now the next dimension is member of the organization. Now see which organization the public service represents here? What is the organization? Government. And what is the basic foundation of the government? Legitimacy. The basic foundation of the government is legitimacy, and public service represents here the organization that is the government. So that is why the public servant should jealously guard the reputation of the government. That is why. The public servant should value very dearly the appearance standard. So another important thing that the public service should value, what is that? The appearance standard. Now what is this appearance standard? Nowadays, this is what is thrown into the dust. Appearance standard means the public servants should not only do right, they should also appear to be doing right. So, what is that? The public servants should be very jealously guarding its own reputation, reputation of the organization. But in what way that reputation that will sustain the trust of the people, legitimacy of the, the organization. So that is why the civil servant, the, the public servants not only should be doing the right things, but they should also appear to be doing the right things. That means appearance of anything wrong is hugely disastrous. It's a mere allegation. Get the code proof. So we are, here we are saying, no, you represent an organization. What is that organization? A public organization. An organization which is focused towards public service. An organization whose strength lies in legitimacy. So thereby, the public service should jealously guard this legitimacy. That is the public trust. And in that particular context, as we are saying, it should value appearance standard. That is what again we are saying appearance standard basically means the public servant should not only be doing right things, they should also be appearing to be doing the right things. 
Sindhi. Since uh, they are the part of an organization, and the organization is a group activity or uh, it is an individual is a group activity and this group activity is aiming towards certain goals so that means what value do we require one social values emotional values and aiming towards certain even objectives so public servants are aiming towards education, health, security. So that means professional values. I may not elaborate this aspect because in the previous classification already we have dealt with this. But one more aspect you know, we need to highlight here. See, uh, the government is a human organization and government is engaged in a particular type of project that is taking care of the people. But it has to take many policy decisions in terms of formulation, in terms of implementation, many minor decisions also it has to take up. Who is to take the decision? Is a single individual or multiple individual? Many individuals. So public service deals with an organizational activity where multiple entities are there. So since there are multiple entities, each individual will have do it each and every individual will have same cycle values, but the value differences will be there. Value differences will be there. Then which value would be the good value and which one will be the bad value? And is it possible to establish a particular value to be the good and another value to be the bad? Is it possible? No. So here we are referring that if you take into account the organization, organization is a group activity in which a large number of individuals with different values are present. So, disagreement is nothing but natural. Disagreement is nothing but natural. And at the same time, if you take into account the citizen, public servants are going to deal with citizen, deal with the people at large, and people, communities, they are also having going to have uh, whatever values, diverse values. So the public servants are going to have disagreement among themselves and public servants are going to have disagreement with whom? People, various communities. So here, <coughs> public servants should have values like tolerance and receptivity. But should avoid 
be normless and promiscuity so which values they should purchase tolerance and receptivity but why they should be having this tolerance and receptivity they should guard against being normless and promiscuity now what does this mean like let's say see within the organization that is going to be disagreement and again no value could be considered as absolutely right and no value could be considered as absolutely wrong no viewpoint can be considered as absolutely right no viewpoint can be considered as absolutely wrong so what would require something that uh, very often you might be using and that has become slightly also more common something agree to disagree person who use the pen frequently so this is something to purchase this particular virtue this particular value agree to disagree being tolerant to others ideas values opinion that is what is being tolerant and being receptive but why being tolerant and receptive should not become normless normless means almost you don't understand as if i don't understand i have a stand but i am open to understanding your stand <clears throat> i'm receptive i'm not normless or promiscuous that means everything goes every law goes every norm goes every principle goes no it's not the case that is what is famously being referred a civil servant should prefer com principle of compromise but should avoid compromise of principles are you able to understand the difference between the two principle of compromise <coughs> and compromise of principles so i'm ready to accommodate your views but that doesn't mean i don't have my views i'm ready to understand your ideas your values your principles and ready to also investigate my principles my ideas but that doesn't mean everything will go with me so these are some of the very important requirements for being a public servant and uh, being a part of the organization apart from this there's something that we have referred professional competence and all these things that's it okay all of you understood values in public service bachcho iske sath ek cheez bas jod dena hai the nolan committee is a famous committee n o l a n nolan nolan committee of uk it has uh, recommended seven values for some for public service
these seven values being honesty, integrity, <coughs> leadership, accountability, selflessness, Objectivity and openness. These values being so overlapping, or in other I still remember when I was thinking of my maybe the post-graduation final year exam. So I used to get always confused with this. Uh, फॉर्मुलाइड Basically, using the the surname of one of my friend, he happened to be from Lakh. His surname was Lakhu, no Lasu. So it was something like Hi Lasu, H I L A S W O. No Hi, H I that is honesty and integrity. <coughs> Lasu L is leadership, A is accountability, S is selflessness. O is objectivity, another O is openness. Okay, so no longer be high class. So this is the values in public service. Okay, बच्चों, okay. कोई क्वेश्चन इस पर पूछना है? हम्म, सब क्लियर? क्या? सर दिस वैल्यू टॉलरेंस व्हिच वैल्यू टॉलरेंस वैल्यू द वैल्यू टॉलरेंस ओके इज इट राइट और एक्सेप्टेंस विल बी मच मोर बेटर टर्म टू यूज पार्डन इज इट राइट टू यूज दिस टर्म टॉलरेंस और द टर्म एक्सेप्टेंस विल बी गुड फॉर यू टॉलरेंस विल बी मच मोर अप्रोप्रिएट बिकॉज़ टॉलरेंस सिंपली डज नॉट मीन दैट्स व्हाट वी क्लासिफाई टॉलरेंस डज नॉट मीन सबजुगेशन Gandhiji valued tolerance, but Gandhiji was the individual who was so courageous to be intolerant to anything that is contrary to his principle. So, when it comes to those final principles, Gandhiji was the most intolerant individual on this earth. But he valued what tolerance. So, tolerance inherently carries that character, the receptivity. मैनेजमेंट दीज आर सदर थिंग्स अदरवाइज यू स्टडी 
So I would rather post this somewhat, you know, for the later part. And let me pick up the next chapter. So I'll be picking up the chapter from paper one, administrative law. Or for that matter, let's say, 
If you take into account convention, all these the cultural norms, the cultural uh, laws, religious laws, all these are what a type of norm because they regulate our behavior, whether the individual behavior or the group behavior. But see, at the same time, there is a proper state laws that is also considered as what a type of norm. So law as such could be considered as a norm itself. So anything that regulates is a type of law. I would say my traditional laws. What is that? Referring to the tradition. My religious laws. Referring to the religious norms. So law could be understood from a very broader perspective, whereby it captures the essence of the norm itself. But see, law in the recent period, in the contemporary period, is used from a narrow perspective, comparatively a narrow perspective. It is used to capture the codification of the norms by the state. So laws moreover refers to the codified norms. <clears throat> and who has codified this? State. The political institution. State. So if you take into account GST is a law. Because this is something codified by whom? The state. The CRPC, CPC or even our constitution. These are what? Codified. We have codified. So codified by who? Basically the political institution, the state. So law is considered generally today the norms of the state or the codified norms of the state. Now considered from this perspective, traditionally, conventionally, there have been three categories. Those being constitutional law, civil law, and criminal law. Constitutional law, civil law, and criminal law. Now, when we say constitutional law, constitutional laws refers to the laws. Those are codified in the constitution or something. What otherwise we refer to as the supreme law of the land. individuals 
groups. The law that regulates the behavior or the law that regulates the relationship between the individuals, the private relationship between individuals or one individual with another individual is the civil law. Another set of law that regulates the behavior or relationship between individuals with society is what is referred to as criminal law. So civil law regulates uh, uh, which type of behavior? Relation between individual and individual. So in case of civil wrong, who is affected? An individual is affected. In case of a criminal wrong, we say it is a criminal offense. We say that or not? In case of criminal wrong, who is affected? The society at large is affected. So that is why few types of crime are considered to be criminal wrongs. Even if, let's say, in case murder, a single individual is dead, but who is actually affected? The collective conscience of the society is affected. So that is why you'll find that okay, okay, since society is affected, the wrong, the crime, the crime, any, 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 any crime that is a criminal crime, the crime is true. Society. So thereby, who fights? Who prosecutes the criminal? In that case, state. But in case of a civil wrong, who prosecutes? Individual. So that is what many all these cases in criminal cases will find. The, the prosecuting side is the state. So thereby in criminal cases, who can withdraw the cases? Let's say I went and filed an affair, cases murder. So case file hota hai. Ek bar FIR file hua, the prosecution starts up file. So who is actually doing all this? Once it is taken into cognizance, it is a criminal uh, case, state comes into picture. And even if I file the case, I cannot win. The state which has to withdraw because it's a crime against whom? The state. In the civil matter, who can withdraw? Individual. Because the wrong has been committed against that individual. Towards uh, the 17th and 18th century, the Renaissance period, there were certain developments. Gradually, the role and responsibility of the state increased. Because post-Renaissance period okay, resulted into what? Administrative states, bigger states. So role and responsibility of the state increased. And there is also emphasis on rule of law, democracy, citizenship.
So here we are saying that certain changes were there and the changes resulted into the phenomena of big state, more responsible state. And at the same time, see the issue of internal and external security also became more and more important. Security related issues also became more important. So this combinedly resulted into a more responsible state. So for this state started formulating laws, rules and regulations because see if you take it on post-Renaissance period, the modern day government, where from the government draws its power? From law, not from an individual. The concept of rule of law and all these things resulted into the state for a state formulating more and more laws, rules and regulations, especially relating to what? Relating to defining its own role, responsibility, obligation, duties, as well, power, authority, limitations. So more and more laws were formulated, more and more rules and regulations were formulated primarily to, 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 to uh, 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 elaborate, to deal with the role, responsibility, duties of the state and its administration along with its power, its authority, its limitations.
before I take off uh, this particular concept for definition, because see, the definition is a very highly varied term. The connotation is highly contested. Because the way that administrative law is understood and defined in the context of, let's say, the common law system, it is not understood in the same way, it's not defined in the same way in the continental legal system. So that is variations are there, significant variations are there. But we'll try to define, we'll try to understand in a generalized way what administrative law means. But before I take up that, let me refer to two important philosophies based on which we are going to discuss a you know, number of these topics under the administrative law. See, I will be referring to two important philosophers and their philosophy, that is uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Listen to this ideas. But listen to these ideas. I am actually trying to, uh, to make you understand this for the purpose because uh, this, 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 has, this is the foundation. Their philosophy is the foundation to the common law system and the continental legal system. These are the two major legal systems across the world based on which the various legal systems in different countries has, has been developed. So let me uh, make you understand in brief these two uh, important uh, now, what is a theorist? Thomas Hobbes and uh, John Locke. Hobbes, H O B B E S, Thomas Hobbes. See, both are social contract theorists, contractualists. See, when you refer to Thomas Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes uh, has developed his theory on the basis of a thought experiment. Now, I would urge all of you not to write this, otherwise you will be studying in other papers, especially in the paper for you to study. But here, let me give you a brief idea. What does this mean? Simply to understand that so that you can start with the definition and other things. See, Thomas Hobbes has developed this theory on the basis of a thought experiment. What is a thought experiment? That means, hypothetically, you create a scenario that is relevant and representative to your area of attention or study or attention or interest. Like let's say, Thomas Hobbes tried to understand the nature of the state and the basis of obedience towards the state. Why should we obey state? State ko manna chahiye स्टेट को मानना चाहिए उसी को प्रोसेस किया समझने के लिए सो ही वांटेड टू अंडरस्टैंड व्हाट इज द नेचर ऑफ द स्टेट एंड व्हाई द स्टेट शुड बी ओबे ओबे एंड इन दैट पर्टिकुलर कॉन्टेक्स्ट इज डेवलप्ड दिस इन दिस आर्गुमेंट ऑन द बेसिस ऑफ द थॉट एक्सपेरिमेंट दैट इज हॉफ्स रेफर टू समथिंग कॉल्ड स्टेट ऑफ नेचर नहीं रेफर टू समथिंग कॉल्ड स्टेट ऑफ नेचर बेसिकली state of nature refers to a condition that existed in the history just prior to human society or human political society came into existence. 
जो जस्ट राइट टू ह्यूमन बींग केम टू लिव इन ए सोशल सराउंडिंग द सिचुएशन दैट एग्जिस्टेड वॉज रेफर्ड बाय हाउस state of nature something like let's say if you take into account a jungle and there the animals are living let's say without any intervention without any regulation so they are primarily living in which type of scenario state of nature that the condition of the nature so we also in some time in the past lived in that condition or not yaad hai ki nahi see referring to that state of nature how spending ह्यूमन बींग बाई नेचर इज सेल्फिस हम लोग सब सेल्फिस है तो बाई नेचर इज वन ऑफ सेल्फिस सो बींग सेल्फिस इन स्टेट ऑफ नेचर द ह्यूमन लाइफ वॉज बैक दैट इज वॉट हाउ सेज द ह्यूमन लाइफ द ह्यूमन बींग्स लाइफ वॉज सॉलिटरी लोनली नेस्टिंग British and soft. Why? Because everybody being selfish, there is a war of all against all. And human being, and human life was threatened from not only human being but also non-human creatures. So that is why the life was soft, life was lonely, life was brutal, nasty, and it was short, uncertain. But the human being being very selfish. Did not like this type of life. With I being selfish, I would like a good life. I would like a stable life. I would like a certain life. So I did not like a life that is unstable, unpredictable, always fearful, threatened. No, no, no. Being let's say attacked from by no unknown sources. So I didn't like this life. So in order to actually protect its own interest, human being. decided to cooperate because human being find in cooperation the protection of its own interest so human being found that how can i safeguard safeguard my own interest how can i actually make myself feel safe secure or protect my own interest that lies in cooperation so human being was ready to cooperate with other human being so same with other human being only for the advancement of whose interest the self interest so this need resulted into the formulation of the first contract which hops refers as social contract the human being came together they formed contract contract with each other and what are the contract that we will live together and protect each other but for but for social living common laws are required because you cannot actually because see when you go for a social living when you are going for living in community i cannot say i will live my way because my way of living might offend you my way of acting my way of actually doing things might offend you or my your rights and your way of living might on my my rights so in that particular context what is required common norms are required mutually agreed norms are required so the social contract gave rise to something called mutually agreed norms but see the human members of the social contract agreed to those norms only to the extent it satisfied their interest so why did i enter to protect my interest not to protect your interest 
So I have read this norm, I have amplified this norm only to the extent that it actually went in my favor, protected my interest. Moment things went against my favor, against me, I refused to comply. But see, as Hobbes says, there is no authority to enforce. Does everybody mutually? So, if you have a question, you can ask me, 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 so that is why again the life became what? Uncertain. So how say the need for that security persisted. Need for the good life and the human being understood only in cooperation the good life exists. So for the need for the good life the human being being failed with social contract entered into a second contract that is a political contract. So human being समझ गया कि इस टाइप से नहीं चलेगा। Cooperation में ही interest है, but cooperation इस टाइप से establish नहीं किया जा सकता। So that resulted into the second contract. What is the second contract? The political contract. So the political contract is the human being will come together, but while coming together, each one of them will surrender themselves to a political entity. And that political entity Hobbes referred as a Leviathan. Remember this term many a time the question has come with this term Leviathan. The name of the book of Hobbes is also Leviathan. So Leviathan is who? The political entity which will be created out of surrendering of everything by every individual party to the contract. So every individual coming, being a part of the contract will surrender itself to this particular political entity. The political entity is Leviathan. So since Leviathan carries power of everyone because everyone has surrendered everything to this entity so Leviathan will be omniscient all knowledgeable omnipotent all powerful So it will be all powerful, all knowledgeable, everywhere present. That means it will be an power. So no entity will be able to challenge this particular entity. Then this is the entity will form laws, rules and regulations. So what, what should be the basis for communitarian living? What is right and what is wrong? Who will be deciding it? This particular entity. And once Leviathan provides for do's and do nots. Everyone, party to the contract, is bound to comply. So only choice is 
whether you enter into the contract or not, there is no choice of going out of the contract. Once into the contract, you surrender your rights to the Leviathan. Leviathan will decide what is right and wrong and thereby each one will follow that and in case of violation, what will happen? Leviathan will punish. State will punish. Now see, if you take into account this particular philosophy, this philosophy says the idea of right and wrong came up only after these political entities were set up. So that means prior to the state, prior to the political entities coming to existence, there was nothing called right, nothing called wrong. Right and wrong gains its meaning only through enforcement. Because if there is no enforcement, there is nothing but right and wrong. Only thing that is there is might is the right. So that is why it is referred that Hobbes' theory of politics overlaps with Hobbes' theory of ethics. What does this mean? That means the rights of the citizen is post-conventional post-constitutional, post-state. Post-conventional, post-constitutional, post-state. Post-conventional. Conventional means convention means what? People coming together. Convention. Okay? Convention attend the other. College may convention attend the other. Paper party or convention may? You are able to understand the term post-convention? So, for how the rights of the citizen arising for only after the state came into existence or the political entity came into existence. So, in this particular context, which is sovereign? Which is sovereign? State. State is sovereign. What is the source of law? State. What is the source of right and wrong? State. So will that be anything called a bad law? Under this philosophy, will there be anything called bad law? No. Because bad and good is defined only by whom? The state. So if this is the case, will there be any provision in such type of arrangement where a law formulated by the state will be subject to interpretation in declaring whether it's right or wrong? No. Because right and wrong, it emerges from the state. So law formulated by the state is itself right. Right itself flows from where? The state. So, the state becomes sovereign, state law becomes sovereign, state becomes the originator of law, state becomes the originator of the right of the people. So my right flowing from whom? The state itself, from the laws of the state itself. My right is not independent of any state, my right is given by the state. My, state is, my right is not independent of the state. My right depends on the state, it is arising from the state. 
So in that case, there will be nothing called as such judicial review. Something studying, okay, law has been formulated, let's find out whether it's a good law or a bad law. If it's a bad law, null and void. It cannot be. This is one philosophy. Understood this philosophy? The second aspect, John Locke. See, John Locke is also a social contract theorist. So, imagination He also developed this idea based on this thought experiment that is the state of nature. But see, unlike to Hobbes, Locke did not begin the human by nature being selfish. Rather, according to Locke, the human by nature is is good. See, Locke in fact uh, maintained that in the state of nature, human being was uh, good, benevolent. the life of the man was bad and in that particular context Locke believed that during this particular period in the state of nature human being enjoyed certain rights according to house when did right emerge when did the rights of the human being emerge only when the state came into existence state in fact provided the rights to the but according to Locke, in the state of nature itself, human beings enjoy certain rights. Even that means, even prior to the state, even state came into existence, even prior to constitution came into existence, citizens, individuals were having rights. Now, what was this, and how was that? Locke says that to understand what are these rights, we need to understand the state of nature itself and the way the human being lived. He is referring in the state of nature, human being was having a life of its own. And who gave this life? The nature. No state gave this life. The nature gave this life. life, who has the right to take away this life? Nature. So right to life was very much there in the state of nature. Second, in the state of nature there was uh, no innovation. The human being could actually roam around freely. Can speak freely. Can shout freely. Can take up avenues freely. So what are the other rights that was very much present in the state of nature? 
But again, the right to liberty was associated was there for whom? Everyone. Right to life was there for whom? Everyone. So everyone had the right of life, right to life. Everyone had the right to liberty. At the same time, another right that was prevalent in the state of nature according to law. That is, human being in the state of nature used to use its own labor. So the human being had the energy. So human being had the capacity to labor. So human being used to labor. So in that particular context as Locke says, anything with which the human being mixed its labor with became its own property. Anything that with which the human being mixed its labor became its property. What does it mean? That means if a human being climbs a tree and actually plucks some fruit, that fruit belongs to that human being. Or let's say fences a particular area, that becomes its own property. So that's what the law says. That's it. There is also right to property. But see, this right to property, right to liberty, right to life was available to each and every one. That means these rights, one, was pre-constitutional, pre-state, pre-convention, before people started living in a society, before people set up a state or came out with political institutions. So these rights were very much prior to the state coming into existence, constitution being formulated or people coming to live in a social setting. These rights were very much there. These rights are only constrained through principle of harm. So only limitation that was there which thought these rights were was no was principle of harm. So this is basically 
consider this philosophy. If you consider this philosophy, one, as we refer, certain rights are inherent rights, innate rights. So thereby certain rights are pre-constitutional, pre-conventional, pre-state. State is not the originator of these rights. If the state is not the originator of these rights, do state have the right to take away these rights? Do you think, because see, the one, if I am originating, if I am giving it, I can take it. According to this prospect, is the state giving these rights? No. So thereby, is the state empowered to take away these rights? No. So thereby, state is only what? Is to be a caretaker. State is only to be taking care of these rights. <clears throat> now, is it possible that state might violate these rights? Is it possible? Yes. Is it not possible that state might violate these rights? If state violates this right through, let's say, its lawmaking, execution, or whatever that might be, can the state be checked? Yes. Because these rights are beyond state. If these rights are beyond state, <coughs> then state cannot actually encroach upon these rights. Then state laws cannot be considered in every case good laws. So state laws can be interpreted as what? Good or bad. It could be interpreted as good laws, it could be interpreted as bad laws. So in this particular type of arrangement, do you think that the role of the judiciary becomes much more important? So in which of these two philosophy, the judiciary gains substantive power? In which type of philosophy, judiciary can play the role of a lawmaker? Is it both the of being a lawmaker? Or in Lockean philosophy? Lockean philosophy. That means Significantly, so we have so many systems of work. Even in European context, if you take into account Britain, its legal system is based on a type of philosophy which is different from the system of France, Germany, or in fact the continental Europe. <clears throat> so let's say if the continental Europe follows the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes. Do you think the legal system is going to have some character that is going to be inherently different from a system which is going to follow the Lockean philosophy? Significantly, it's going to differ. Do you think in this particular context the role of the administration and the legal boundaries of the administration is going to also be affected? Yes, it's going to be. So that means, at the same time, do you think the idea of the rule of law is going to be different in a particular society where the Hobbesian philosophy is the foundation from that in a society where the Lockean philosophy is the foundation. Do you think the nature of rule of law will vary? The role of judiciary will vary? The idea of state will vary? The concept of fundamental rights will vary? The role of judiciary vis-a-vis -vis the state will vary, executive will vary, 
So see, based on these two major philosophies, the legal system around the world has developed. Though the legal system around the world are highly diverse, dynamic, complex, but broadly they can be divided into these two categories. What is these two categories? The continental legal system and the global system. Systems come under the Ours is basically following which system? So, do you think in our context our judiciary is playing a lawmaking role? Yes. Playing that lawmaking role or not? Do you think the same way the judiciary can play the role in Germany or France? Why not? With the major philosophical foundation in those uh, legal systems is who? Whose philosophy? Obviously, philosophy. In our context, the major philosophical premise is the Lockean philosophy. Anyway, we'll come to that. So, based on this, let us try to define administrative law. Again, it's a brief outline relating to these two major philosophies I took up. <coughs> yeah. 
which also will take up slightly the US and American system slides. Small differences there. Britain will be having impact on both long and long. Being nearer to continental system. The Lockean philosophy has most influenced the American system. Anyway, uh, let's try to define administrative law. As already have referred that administrative law, uh, like many other concepts, has not been unanimously defined. And at the same time, it is also an evolving dynamic concept. That means the meaning it carried gets an earlier stage or period is not the same as that of the meaning that it carries today. So, the meaning of the administrative law in evolutionary is dynamic. But see, let us consider few definitions to develop and workable understanding on this. Let us say, first of all, if you consider the theorist, Professor Hart, H-A-R-T, James Hart, See, Professor James Hart says, administrative law refers to the laws formulated by the administration. Law refers to that branch of law 
time. The organization powers and duties come on the legal requirements governing their operation and remedies available to those remedies available to those adversely affected by administrative action by those adversely affected by administrative action now see uh, what is professor swachi saying what is administrative law that branch of law is a category of law but that category of law captures according to swachi one the roles and duties of the administrative authorities so a set of law that actually specifically deals with what is the role of let's say administration its members various positions what are their authorities so roles and authorities of uh, roles and responsibilities of the duties of the administrative authorities second the manner in which this is to be operationalized so not merely that you have the role let's say taking care of the and let's say education of the slum dwellers but how this is to be done so the manner in which the law is dealing with the manner of the operation and at the same time see while exercising or you know while undertaking okay, this roles responsibility exercising this authority there might be certain demands people might get up aggrieved they may not be satisfied they might be unhappy so the manner in which these grievances or remedies could be available against these grievances so the laws that define the remedies are these grievances remedies to the grievances so here professor swachi is of the opinion that all that law that deals with the role duties of the administration the manner in which these duties and the responsibilities are exercised and at the same time in exercise of this a function if at all there is any grievance the manner in which the citizen can actually enforce responsibility or redress the grievances that is what is administrative law now similarly if you take into account uh, the indian law institute it has given a very elaborate definition and see indian law institute has given a very elaborate definition by including or by drawing upon the definition of griffith g r i w f i t h griffith and street according to it street s t r w t according to it 
law is the operation and control of administrative authorities. Operation and control of administrative authorities. It thereby includes it thereby includes one what sort of what sort of power does the administration exercise? What sort of power does the administration exercise? Second, what are the limits of those powers? What are the limits of those powers? Next, what are the ways in which the administration is kept within those limits? Fourth, what are the procedure followed by administrative authorities? Similar type of outline, you know, only uh, elaborating role, responsibility, how it is exercised, what is the limitation to this power, what are remedies available, and how these remedies is to be enforced. So these are something which is uh, uh, being included as per the Indian Law Institute and the Indian Law Institute's definition, and uh, is based on the definition of. Griffith and Street. In fact, Indian Law Institute has added few things to Griffith and Street. The basis of the Griffith and Street's definition. It simply says that administrative law refers to all those law. One, that defines the role and responsibility. Two, that means the powers relating to the administration. Two, the limits to this power. Three, the manner in which this has to be exercised. Four, remedies against this and the manner in which these remedies have to be exercised. That means in general we can say all that, all those law or the branch of law that captures the laws that is related to administration in any form, that is what is referred to as administrative law. So any law that deals with administration with regard to its power, duty, responsibility, limitations, or whatever, that is what is referred to as administrative law. So this is a brief reference to what is administrative law. Did everyone understand this? No, we are also we are not through with the many. We are not through with the many.
But whatever I discussed till now, uh, did you, did everyone understand? Any question on this? Hey, sir, okay. Thank you. Thank you.